Hey y'all, I'm Casey Bell from the Shake Up Learning Show, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Ed McDonald, the author of the thrilling novel, Korea's Game. His characters are dealing with their everyday lives, and then North Korea launches a nuclear and cyber attack on the U.S. It's a page-turning story. Thanks for listening. Uh, By the way, it would be awesome if you reviewed and rated the episode on the podcast platform you're using to listen to me right now. Thanks so much. Enjoy. You know, a couple years ago, my... uh, my wedding band started having problems and I've had it for 34 years and uh, it started breaking at, at the backside of it and we got it fixed a couple of different times. And then eventually not too long ago, one of those, that backside just fell out and it couldn't be fixed any longer. And I'm like, this is crazy. I, you know, I shouldn't have to deal with this. And, and so anyway, then a friend told me about uh, Boone Titanium Rings, and uh, which is at boonrings.com. And they have this incredible selection of titanium rings. And, and uh, I now have a titanium ring as my wedding band. What's really cool is like it's an engraved ring that has uh, these cool car pistons on it and some stars. And, and I could have chosen from any kind of different stand, uh, styles, as well as they have all these other different types of rings, like uh, inlays that have meteorite, wood, acrylic, stone, and things like that they also make uh, carved rings and, and, a, and just a, an assortment of other rings that uh, are just pretty amazing they also make pendants and cufflinks and earrings and as well as a couple different types of tools um, I got to tell you something it's really cool because this ring's not going to break <laughs> and uh, they, they'll make you happy and uh, just as a note uh, teaching learning leading k-12 um, they've become an affiliate sponsor for us and so if you were to use our code which is capital t capital l capital l capital k the number 12 and uh, use that at checkout. You get 10% off your ring, and uh, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 gets a commission. I think you're going to love their rings. I know I'd love mine. You are listening to Teaching Learning Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Ed McDonald worked with the United States Congress to develop a national day to commemorate the Challenger astronauts, a national day of excellence for years, 87 to 89. He wrote three resolutions to create a national day of excellence in honor of the Challenger astronauts. He volunteered on a congressional staff and lobbied these this resolution into law by the U.S. Congress for years 87, 88, and 89. Each of those years, they held a ceremony in a congressional meeting room and had astronauts give awards to people who had demonstrated excellence in their lives, especially teenagers who had turned their lives around. Ed was a graduate teaching assistant in English at the University of Arizona, and for 38 years, he was an adjunct professor of writing at, at Pima College. He served five years as a reserve officer in the Tucson Police Department, and for six years, he was the director of academic programs and publications editor of the Final Option, Tactical Force Institute, an international postgraduate training institute for SWAT and hostage rescue team officers. Additionally, Ed spent several years working with delinquent teens. Ed has edited, illustrated, and published eight advanced law enforcement tactical textbooks. He has two master's degrees and has lived in Mexico, Russia, Kazakhstan, and the United States. Today, we're focused on his novel, Korea's Game, an explosive debut thriller by a law enforcement expert and is set in Arizona during the two months leading up to North Korea's combined nuclear and cyber attack on the United States and the two days immediately following. Ed, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. Hi, everybody. I'm certainly glad to be here. Thanks for listening. Well, glad uh, you're joining me and uh, let's start with you. You know... I'll never forget the loss of the Challenger and its crew. Matter of fact, I was walking uh, across a campus in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, uh, we could see the, that famous signature um, cloud that was up there for, for a while after it happened. Uh, could you tell us more about how you worked with the United States Congress to develop a national day to commemorate the Challenger astronauts? Well, it was interesting because I knew almost nothing about Congress when I got involved in this. Uh, the day of the accident, I, uh, I wrote a letter to the president saying that we should have such a day. And uh, then I didn't want to mail it because I thought I didn't get involved in a huge amount of work or people would think I was crazy. And I called my best friend and he said, you have to do it. Then I, then I knew I was sucked in. I had to do it. 
And so uh, I, I sent this letter off, I sent it to the newspaper. I went to my school, I got it made a school day. I went to the, the school board, got it made a district day. Went to the mayor, made it made a city day. Went to the state's Congress, got it made a state day. And my congressman, Jim Colby, called me. And he said, Ed, I'd like to talk to you about this national day. So I went and I met with him. And he said, you know, I think you could put this through yourself if you work out of my office. He said, I'd like you to write up an official resolution. And I said, I've never written one. He said, well, here's a couple of resolutions that have been passed by other people. Study them and you know the style. So I went home and I wrote a congressional uh, resolution, came back the next day and I said, here you go. And he said, well, this is fine. Uh, I want you to come work in my office this summer and you'll have a chance to be an official lobbyist and lobby for this, this through. And so I went and I met, usually I, I met some of the congressmen, some of the senators, usually I met their staff and uh, the staff would talk to them and then they, they signed on as sponsors. And so uh, spending, spending a whole summer doing this, I got enough, uh, enough staff behind it that they passed it as a national day. I had to come back the next year and do it again because they only pass these days one year at a time. They don't make them forever. Otherwise we would have 8 million national days. So uh, they did it. And uh, so uh, after it was passed in October, a few months later, I was back there in one of the congressional meeting rooms giving a speech uh, about you know, what, what I saw this, uh, this embodying. And we, uh, of course, once, once the, the nation gets involved and all the other people who are, who are there are active, glad to participate, NASA very kindly uh, sent over a number of astronauts to give awards to kids and uh and to a few people from um, corporations who had you know excelled and uh, so we did it again we did it again eventually i almost died from exhaustion <laughs> what that's awesome that you were able to do that i you know it's um the shuttle program was incredible it was extension i grew up in florida and it was an extension of the apollo program you know when when we uh as a kid they you know they in school, they'd push out the TV and you'd watch the launches and you'd see the different stuff going on. And then for the longest time that was happening with the, uh, with the shuttle program. And uh, then it started becoming like old hat, it seemed like. And uh, people just started going, oh, yeah, the shuttle's going up. Yeah, big deal, big deal. And then suddenly we had this happen, uh, this, uh, this accident happen. And, and uh, it, really, uh, it really got the attention of not only the country, but the world. Uh, I never forget, I was in college at the time and I was walking across campus and one of my fraternity brothers uh, saw me and he said, uh, hey, did you hear? And I, and I was like, you, and he was somebody who, he didn't have a problem telling, you know, <laughs> an unfunny joke. And, and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. He's like, no, he goes, we got the TV on inside. He goes, look up and, you know, you could see this big cloud up there and uh, uh, that famous cloud that, that you've seen so many pictures of. And, you know, it, uh, it was, uh, you know, really like I said, got the attention of the world and it's, uh, um, it's a crazy, uh, crazy sort of time we had, uh, you know, the, and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, brought a lot of things to attention about, uh, you know, what's being paid attention to what's not as far as the safety and, uh, and the focus of what's, what's going on in, in the space program. So, but, uh, that's, that's awesome that you were doing that. Well, I, um, what got me going was that night, the night of the accident, I uh, was teaching a FEMA college class. And uh, I began the class by asking everybody to stand for a minute of silence. After the class, I was shocked by how many people came up to me and said, oh, thank you for the minute of silence. I wanted to participate in some way and you gave me a chance to show that I cared. And I began to realize that people needed to participate. And so when I wrote the proposal for National Day of Excellence, my emphasis was this could not be another day for barbecues and hot dogs. This had to be a day dated to, dedicated to actual excellence, either, either being excellent, be doing your best on that day, or celebrating other people who have done their best. Yes. Uh, several years later, um, um, Marty, Martin Luther King III, came to me and asked me for some advice about uh, a national day for his father. And I said, I suggest you do what I did. And I said, you know, you want to stay away from the barbecues. Uh, try think of things that people could do on that day that uh, would uh, that your father would approve of and that uh, that would uh, appropriately celebrate his goals and ideals. And um, 
and I saw that for the next uh, several years he was you know he was applying that, and I was I was very happy to see that. That's very cool. Very cool. Uh, you know, one of the things that I want to do and uh, um, is is kind of shift and talk about something else that you've done over time. You've written textbooks for law enforcement. What got you started in that endeavor? What got me started was a friend of mine uh, was the sole owner of the Tactical Force Institute, and he needed textbooks desperately, and uh, he couldn't write them. But he, uh, you know, you have these guys in uh, in law enforcement and the military who are very intelligent, and they have a lot of information, but they're not trained writers. And uh, so, basically, I became a ghostwriter for these guys. Uh, now, this is an exaggeration. It's not true, but it's as, it's as though they came to me with a paper box, a cardboard box full of papers and said, can you make this into a book? And, you know, so I, I desktop published it. I illustrated it. I, I rewrote it and organized it. And although all the actual information came from these guys. That's very cool. Very cool. The, uh, um, and so that, and that leads me to this because, you know, writing seems to be something that you do and uh, and have done and it uh, and uh, um but one of the things all these other writings have in common is that they're all nonfiction. what what, in, what inspired you to take on a novel um really it came down to uh i read a book called lights out by ted couple in which detailed how the american uh, uh power grid is is structured both physically and financially and uh, he made it very, very clear how, how rickety and uh, in danger of failing it is. And that if somebody gave it a little push, it would just start falling like a row of dominoes. And it was, it was galvanizing. But, and Koppel is an excellent writer. But it was a, it was a fact-filled book. And uh, most people don't read fact-filled books for entertainment. So I, thought, I said, someone has to put this into fiction so that people can read a novel about this and absorb the information along with the entertainment. And I looked left, I looked right, I didn't see anyone else doing this. So I said, okay, I'm gonna write a novel, I'm gonna make it, uh, I'm gonna incorporate what I know about cyber warfare. And what I know about cyber warfare is that it could happen in about 30 seconds from now or in 20 years. And that when it happens, we could possibly lose 20, 30, 20, 30%, maybe 40% of our population because the disaster would go on for a decade and people would be without food, without water, horrible that it would be that it would be the uh you know one of the things that i want to make sure that uh, um, we talk about is let's talk about some of your writing techniques and in writing korea's game um did you outline or did you kind of let your imagination go where it went to next you know how did i come up with these people well no how did in in coming up with a story did you just start writing and, or did you create an outline? Did you just let your imagination go and it, it just kind of went where it went or did you actually make I'm, steps? I'm not, an, I'm not an outline guy. Uh, if I had to create an outline, I would be here three years later still trying to write it. <laughs> gotcha. Um, what, I, what I did was I just started, I just started, I said, you know, it was, it was, it was hot outside. Murph came into the, and came into the bar just because he had to be somewhere. And uh, as he was walking through the bar, there was a lot of talking and banter, shouting going on. People were saying, what the, what the? And uh, he's going, what's this? Usually it's quiet in here. And he said, didn't you see it, man? Didn't you see it? They nuked Seattle. Didn't you see it? And he said, what are you talking about? And then he turns and they put the, these sports bars all have large screen TVs. And he sees uh, some uh, images of devastation. And... Uh, it seems that North Korea had sent missiles at uh, Los Angeles, San Diego, uh, San Francisco, and Seattle, and we had managed to, uh, our, 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 our missile defense system had actually knocked those out. But one of them wasn't destroyed, it just got knocked over from Seattle to Vancouver, and uh, the Canadians didn't ask to be involved in this, but they still lost Vancouver. Um, and so we, had, we were watching a lot of videos of Vancouver burning, and everybody was shouting and crying and raising their fists. And he was thinking, and he was very quickly putting two and two together and realizing it had to be from from Korea. And he knew if Korea nuked us, that cyber war would come next because that was really their their big punch. And uh, while he was sitting there trying to put plan together in his mind, he saw the lights were starting to go out. Yeah, that would. Uh... <laughs> 
it would be a kind of a change of focus for everything that was going on if that was happening. So, you know, um, one of the things that I want to talk about is also get you to, because um, your main characters are very, uh, and not to say that anyone's not, but uh, um, you start kind of really connecting with uh, your main characters and uh, feeling for them and wanting it to work out for them and stuff like this. Um, how'd you create your characters, especially like Murph and Danny, for example, Murph being the, I guess the main and Danny being well, his daughter. That's a good question. Uh, what I do, I, I didn't fully answer the question you just asked about how to create it. The thing is, I, I, I start out with a scene and I start describing the scene and then I let the characters talk. And to me, they be, and the more they talk, the more they become alive in my mind and the more detailed my understanding of them is and the more, the better understanding I have of what's going to do next. And so I let the characters act. I let them do whatever they would do. But at the same time, I have kind of a vague structure in my mind that, well, this is going to end in a disaster. He's going to try this and fail. Uh, something bad is going to happen to Danny. And uh, then I base this partly on people I know, uh, people I imagine. Um, Danny is an amalgam of a number of uh, teenage girls that I've worked with. I work with a lot of... Uh, uh, teenage girls who weren't able to, to get to deal with authority. You know, they were not mentally disabled. They just, for whatever emotional reasons, they couldn't deal with authority and they didn't fit into society. And they did a lot of stupid things. They weren't stupid girls, but they did stupid things and they got in a lot of trouble. And uh, Danny was, is, as you, if you've read the book, you know, Danny was a very nice girl. She's not the kind of person who would ever get in trouble, but you know, the nicest kid can get in trouble if the people who are supposed to be looking out for them are all looking the other way. And in Danny's case, that's what happened. No one was protecting her. And this guy, her mother's boyfriend, dragged her into a situation that was leading to prostitution. And she wanted nothing to do with it. And he threatened to you know, beat her senseless if she didn't go along and do everything he said. And at all this time, her mother was uh, passed out drunk in the next room. So. There was no one to help her. And her father, he was being noble. They got divorced when she was a little girl and he agreed to stay away because mom wasn't such an alcoholic in those days. He agreed to stay away and let her raise him, raise her. And uh, whenever he sent a text to his daughter, his, uh, his ex-wife would answer the text as though she were the daughter and she'd say, dad, leave me alone. And so he had no idea what was going on. And you can only imagine, because you get the idea that Murph is one of these soft-spoken people. There's, 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 a, there's, an, old, there's an old saying, you, you have, an, you have, an, you have uh, aroused the wrath of a patient man. He's the patient man, but if you arouse his wrath, honey, look out. <laughs> and he definitely fits that description, because that's... Uh... What's getting ready? To, that's that's a good way of describing uh, uh, what's going to happen with that character. So, you know, so uh, you know, and you know, one of the things I I really like about your book is that the characters are you feel for them, or in some cases, do not like some of them, <laughs> and and I mean as a as a person or you know as people, <laughs> I guess is my point. So uh, um, so you do a good job of tapping into feelings of the reader. I like that. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. So let's get into your story. Uh, I mean, life is happening while North Korea is threatening. Um, talk a little bit about why you wrote your story this way, because it's, you've got life going on, and then suddenly there's a little bit that you give a blip, and then that's going on in the world, and you go back to life going on, and then you come back, you know, North Korea does something again, and that type of thing. Okay. Well, I started the book out with, with the actual attack, because uh, I wanted to draw people into the book, because they see this attack take place, and they went, whoa, this is pretty exciting. And the next thing that happens is the next chapter is called Two Months Earlier. And a lot of the book is going through those two months that lead up to the attack. And then at the end of the book, you get to the attack and go past it. And then there's a lot of violent action after you've gone past it. Um, but, you, but the thing is, as you're going through the book, you're learning who the characters are and you're developing feelings for them so that you really, really care about what happens. Now, there is a bad guy in this, in this story, 
And a number of people have told me I could not wait for somebody to kill him. <laughs> I'm one of those. I'm one of those. <laughs> so, uh, and of course, that was what I wanted. And uh, the this also, I wanted to get out this message about how uh, uh, being protected from a grid crash. And Murph had an idea that was like almost right, but not quite. He believed in distributed power. He was trying to persuade local businessmen to, uh, when they start something like a uh, standalone emergency room, that they all hospitals have a generator and a month of, a month of fuel, but that's it. They're they're not set up to go for for years. They're set up to go for a month till the, everything's fixed. A real disaster would go last years. So he, he's trying to get them to build emergency rooms and hospitals that are set up with microgrids that. If it's a windy area, they have uh, windmills, but mostly in Arizona, it would be solar power, lots of batteries, and uh, they could go for years waiting for the power to come back on the grid. And during that time, the hospital could still serve people who are injured and ill. Um, you could get professional plazas to do this if you got uh, uh, the people building the plaza to agree to it in advance. So all the dentists and dermatologists and so forth there would still be serving the public. Uh, he, um, his big success happened before the book started. He, uh, he had an angel, uh, a very rich friend who kicked in a lot of money, millions. And they built a super station for the sheriff's department that had uh, its own power, its own water, its own storage facilities for lots of uh, food, its own dormitories, because they knew in a real disaster, they wouldn't just be putting the sheriff, sheriff deputies up there. The police from Tucson would have to run up there to hide. Otherwise, uh, they'd be murdered in their homes. So uh, he set this up as a, a demo model for the world or for most of America to see and maybe want to copy. Well, of course, he never gets to having anybody copy it because this only goes for two months before there's a disaster. But that was his idea was to make a you know, show people what could be done. He, and he's. He's trying to persuade people to get distributed power so that if you have distributed power for the water system, people would still have water uh, and so on and so on. And he got some limited success. And, you, and you're, you're cheering for the poor guy, but hooray. But at the same time, he really manages to rub a lot of powerful people the wrong way by suggesting that they, if they're a good American, they really want to spend a lot of money they don't want to spend. And uh, he has people constantly going to the sheriff and saying, now you got to fire this guy. And the sheriff protects him in various ways. He keeps him on, keeps him on staff. And uh, at one point later in the book, he's talking to the sheriff and he says, well, it seems like you actually believe what I've been telling. And the sheriff says, you idiot. I've always believed what you were saying. <laughs> Why do you think I protected you all these times? <laughs> uh, the, the sheriff, I, I love the sheriff. He's just such a, uh, a straight shooter, yes. metaphorically speaking. Um, and, uh, you know, and I've got, I've got some character, characters in there that are friends of mine. I have a, a Jamaican character who, who's making fun of people by pretending to speak in Jamaican patois that people can't understand. And the truth is he speaks perfect English, but he, he, just, he just loves for people to look confused and pretend they understand him. Uh, Murph... Well, Murph is actually a friend of mine, whose name is Murph. Cool. Uh, and, and when I wrote Murph, I always imagined him looking like my friend. Now, my friend is uh, actually a, a very peace-loving guy who doesn't, want, who doesn't believe in having guns, and he's never been in the military. Um, but he's got the, but he, the Murph attitude is what I wanted. And, I, and I, always, I always imagine my friend when I'm writing what Murph says and does. Other people, I totally made up. Danny was an amalgam of a lot of teenage girls I've seen because I worked with a lot of girls who were in trouble. Uh, they, you know, if they couldn't deal with, their, with authority and they couldn't deal with their parents, what does that mean? It means that at two in the morning, they're sneaking out their window to go, to go see some guy that their parents would rather die than see her with him. And, um, and you know, terrible things happen to them. And so I made Danny this really nice girl who wouldn't do this, but she got forced into it because I wanted people to see how easy it is to force a good girl into being bad. Because everybody thinks these girls want to do it. 
they, they think these girls want to go into bars and dance half naked on pole. A, a couple of them do. There's a, you know, a couple of them do and make a lot of money. Most of them give all their money to their pimp. Most of them are forced into it, and they could, if they tried to leave, they would get um, their arms broken. Um, and you, know, you never know who is who. But uh, guys go to these places, and they ogle the girls, and the girls are smiling at them, and they think, oh, she likes being, she likes being here. And uh, I kind of wanted to expose that uh, for uh, the utter fantasy that it is. We do, do a good job of bringing that in there. That's uh, because that, uh, you know, that theme, then it builds and it goes throughout it because Danny gets, gets pulled into it. Um, thanks to her mom's um, kind of letting anything happen. And, uh, and then of course, to the vile people who, who make sure that it becomes her world. And uh, you know, there's any number of things that happen there that uh, I thought you did kind of a good job of, of making some points like you just talked about there. So um, and it's, you know, it is something that, uh, just as a side note, it helps you really not like certain characters. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it does help with a transformation. It's kind of interesting what you're talking about with Murph being somebody who, who, you know, who doesn't have that, uh, that background in the police or military. And, uh, um, cause Murph brings some things to, <laughs> to pass, you know, the part of him, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention, uh, that I wanted to talk about was, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting cause you have a character when Murph's angering people, because he's talking about these different things. Um, one of the care, one of the people in the audience says something to him about why, why do you seem to be the only one talking about this? And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was, you know, that that's kind of, are you kind of, making a comment about society there. And the reason why I say that is because that's kind of the way this is. I mean, when we talk about microgrids and, and uh, possibility in cyber warfare and things like this, there's not a whole lot of pro proactivity. It's a lot of the opposite. You know, the idea, there's not a lot of people talking about certain things. They talk about what uh, seems to get people's attention more um, than something like that. I mean, and I just thought it was interesting that you had a character actually say that to, uh, to Murph. So I don't know what your thoughts were. <laughs> I'm a big believer in reality. And I fit well. <laughs> fit well, because that's, uh, you know, he, like you were talking about before, he was talking about these urgent care, these little standalone stations, the many microgrids and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, lots of people were kind of like, yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> Seems well, you know, uh, if we don't have a cyber war in the next 10 years, anybody who installed a microgrid would be regarded, be regarded as a crank. <laughs> and if we, somebody did install it and we did have a, uh, a cyber war, everybody would be his best friend. It's kind of funny that way, isn't it? <laughs> um, very much so. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that we talked about is um, at the point in your story where everything's happening, there's an attack on a U.S. warship, a nuke attack on the U.S., a cyber attack, and more. Uh, Murph loads up his vehicle with whatever he can find that might be helpful. If something like this happened, how well do you think we as a country would be prepared to deal with surviving as individual people? I mean, he actually has to, he has to, he has interactions with people along the way that uh, just get in his, get in his way as he's trying to deal with, including law enforcement, uh, which eventually come to his side and aid. But uh, I mean, how, how much do you think we'd be able to deal with this? I mean, what are your Very thoughts? badly. Very badly. Uh, you know, and it, it depends on different areas of the country. For example, in Arizona, a lot of people would die from dehydration because there just isn't water. Whereas if you went to Tennessee or Kentucky, there's always a creek somewhere where, uh, where people could go and get a drink. It might have bacteria in it, but it'd be water. Um, um, in some places of the world, there's hunting. A lot of men are hunters and they, you know, okay, everything goes to hell, but they're still out shooting rabbits and the occasional deer. Out here, men are hunters, but you got to drive a long way to get to a hunting area. And uh, again, there's a problem with, look, problem with water and you only have enough gasoline to go hunting a couple of times unless you happen to live in one of those areas. The people who would make out would be the preppers and the, uh, the homesteaders, uh, the people you see in, you know, in, uh, uh, you know, Africa, Alaskan bush people, they'd be fine. Uh, the people who use, who are, who are do home, doing homesteading, uh, they would basically be okay. And, you know, except they might need medicine or 
medical care occasionally, but they, they, they get by. Uh, but the average person is not a prepper. Uh, I've, uh, I've never been a hunter. If, I, if my dad had been a hunter, I would have cheerfully gone with him, but I was never, you know, taken out and taught to hunt. But, and I have nothing against it as long as you're hunting for food. I, I don't think much of trophy hunters. But nonetheless, I am, um, uh, of course, I was, I was a reserve police officer for five years, so I know how to handle a gun. I'm NRA a, a, a firearms instructor. I, I definitely know how to point a gun, make it go bang. Um, but uh, being as I'm uh, 10,000 years old by now, I, uh, would I would prefer not to get involved in one of those situations. <laughs> um, when I was younger, perhaps I was a little hotter, hotter, hot-blooded and more willing to do it, but not now. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I like to think that I'm clever, but I, I don't think I, I'd be a survivor. Uh, my, my wife might be. And she's not a prepper either, but she's just as smart as a whip. Uh, so she, she might get the girls uh, through it somehow. What, um, you know, I know you get into it towards, as everything's going kablooey, you know, you have uh, um, lots of issues where law enforcement are out trying to keep people away from areas and they're, they're having problems with what people are doing. And of course, Murphy gets attacked and dealing with certain things. And, you know, it, uh, um, yeah, you can see people wanting to take from others, um, whether it's gasoline or um, whatever they've managed to scrounge up and have and things like this. And that would, it, it would cause you to have to figure out how to deal with, you know, in, in, my, in, the, in the sequel to this, uh, American Armageddon, I deal with the rise of the warlords, which is to say uh, bigger and uh, more bloodthirsty gangs. And uh, they'll, you know, the gangs would number in the 50s to 100 or maybe more than 100 members. And uh, they, they would just be, they would be actual warlords. They would be thieves. They'd be trying to store up enough loot that they could build their own fortress. And they'd be like to control, control their own land. And of course, during that second book, a lot of these warlord, warlords would rise and fall as they're, as they're just killed by others. Uh, and in the meantime, the forces of law enforcement are trying just to protect uh, individual people and not get involved in an actual war with these guys because they're way outnumbered. Gotcha. And then that, and, yeah, that would be, that'd just be a nightmare um, beyond nightmare. And one of the things what you just talked about leads me to this. Uh, um, let's talk a little bit about your book in, a, in this way, you know, Korea's game had a, it has kind of a journey that's going on and it, and where it started. I mean, you actually completed it a few years ago when it had a different title, cyber war attack. And, um, you know, could you share some about how it sat and how you were given some advice that created a marketing focus for you and, and now how it's generated interest, even as a screenplay, uh, uh, for a series. Could you, could you go into this a little bit? Sure. I'll be glad to, uh, you know, there's, a. Uh... There's an old joke told by comedians that uh, about the, the comedian on his deathbed, and he says, oh, dying is easy, comedy's hard. <laughs> and people ask me about writing, and my, my response is, writing is easy, marketing's hard. Uh, you, you, could write, you could write the great American novel, and people have done it, and it, and it ended up on a shelf, and nobody ever read it, and their grandchildren threw it away. I'm confident that's happened. In my case, I wrote a decent book. Uh, I got it. I got, I got it. I did it. I had a, did the cover for it because I, I couldn't afford to pay someone to do a cover and uh, got it out there. got it, got it uh, published by Ingram Spark, got it out in all the stores, but it wasn't on shelves. It was all electronic. It was all by it, by it, by mail order. And there just wasn't any interest stirred up to buy it. I didn't have the money to, to create it. And these guys, they don't, they don't create it unless you get pay them to. So, a couple of years go by, and I, uh, I uh, did a, a mail-out to a lot of book agents. I was trying to get an agent to take the book on and sell it to a, a, a name, name, mainstream publishing company. And one guy who was a, a big agent for a, APA uh, uh, in uh, Beverly Hills wrote me back. The first thing I did was check him out on Google to be sure he wasn't writing from inside a dumpster somewhere. Uh, and he wasn't. He was actually the real deal. And he said, you know, you, uh, your, your book should be aimed at being a, uh, a screenplay. And not only that, you need, all the people who are buying screenplays now are looking at international titles. 
you need a title with foreign country named in it to generate interest. So I changed it to uh, the title to um, Korea's Game. And then I wrote two extra chapters. The first chapter is uh, the piece of video that would go in the titles of a movie. And this, uh, the last chapter would be a piece of video that would go in the ending credits. So you'd uh, play this video while you're running the end credits. Uh, otherwise, the two books are the same book. And uh, Cyber War Attack is still for sale, you know, Books A Million and Barnes and & Noble and all these other big places. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm trying to market Korea's game. And I've, uh, I filmed a, um, I, I didn't film it myself. I paid somebody to film it. And then I just, then I gave them a hard time, made them change it 10 times. Uh, <laughs> but I, uh, I have sizzle reel made, which costs thousands of dollars. And it's a, a two, two minute and 50 second preview of what the video, of what the movie would look like if the movie was already out. And so they could, they could take the sizzle reel and show it in the previews. Um, now the reason for that is the people who are in charge of big, big you know, publishing companies and the people who are build, big film producers, there's no way they have to set time to sit down and read any kind of a manuscript. They are way too busy. But they can take two minutes and 50 seconds to look at a sizzle reel. And as a film producer, they can look at that sizzle reel and analyze it very quickly and say, this is something I could make money from or not. Book publishers could look at that and it would fire their imagination and say, if this is, if the book is really this good, then I think we want to do the book. So I'm sending the sizzle reel to book publishers and to uh, film producers. It's, uh, it's been a long road getting up here. And uh, now I'm at the point of, uh, we're doing a publicity blitz. I'm uh, doing all these, all these interviews for the next couple of months. Uh, we're, we're doing all this mail out to film producers and to uh, uh, book publishers. And um, we're gonna see if we can, we're basically, I'm hoping that somebody will be driving to work and listening to this podcast. And they'll start, and this is the someone who's driving to work is either a book agent or the assistant to a book agent or friend of a book agent who will listen to this and say, I got to tell Marty about this. I'll bet he might want this book. And that's what, that's, what's going to save me. That's awesome. That's it's going to happen. It's going to be happening. It's going to be this, it's going to be this episode too. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, that's, that's incredible. And I, it, um, and it's neat what you're, you're doing to try and get the attention of people out there and shifting because that, that marketing, like you said, that's, uh, I guess that's what you've discovered is a big part of uh, um, trying to get the book out there as much as writing it, if not more, which sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it is, you know, that, um, you know, no, most young, most new writers have, don't have a clue about, uh, about marketing and they're, and they, and you know, there's all these people who sell them books and advice on how to write your book, <laughs> you know, like I said, writing a book is the easiest part. I love writing a book. Uh, I, nothing would make me happier than having a bunch of money in the bank and be writing another book. Um, uh, maybe I, may, someday I will get to that point. The, the, the uh, American, American Apocalypse um, is way more violent. American Apocalypse is about the clash between these warlords and, their, and the relationship of the war between the war, warlords and the the law enforcement agencies that are trying to protect the survivors of the public. Um, and it, 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 that, that just starts out immediately in the book. It launches into this. And uh, whereas I, I, I really made um, this first book a lot more slow. But they're, they're you know, two different books and they're, they're both, uh, I, I find them both interesting. That what's, what's interesting is trying to figure out what will really happen. Um, one of the things I want to do is I want to show uh, the uh, Sinaloa cartel having control of a big part of the uh, federales in Mexico and the, uh, the cartel invading southern Arizona and New Mexico. And uh, of course, what they haven't thought of, they haven't figured on dealing with is the fact that Davis Monthan is here, which is the, the world's center for A-10 ground attack planes. Hmm. <laughs> That could tip the balance of power. Just a little bit. <laughs> Just yeah. a little bit. <laughs> I love our military. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, going to, uh, I, I lived in New Mexico for a while and you've got some uh, um, very nice 
Air Force bases there. You know, at one point, the Eagles used to all be there, and now it's, I'm sure it's much more, um, you know, whatever the current <laughs> attack. Well, you know, if, you're to, if you're going to attack somebody with tanks, you don't want to be near an A-10 base. Yeah, no, definitely not. Definitely not. Giant vacuum cleaner flying low and carrying lots of stuff that kills tanks. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a big I'm a big supporter of our veterans. I was four out myself. My vision was like 2400. If I lost my glasses in the jungle, I'd be shooting my friends. Uh, so they they didn't want me out there with a gun. But I um, I've done I've done what I can to uh, to support the effort. Uh, I uh, I'm a big believer in wounded. Uh, wounded warrior project and uh, things like that. Uh, these guys have given their essence and sometimes their lives and other times the remainder of their lives to our country. And if we don't appreciate that, there's something wrong with us. You got that right. Got that right. Well, well Ed, this has been awesome talking with you today. Uh, before we close, if someone wanted to connect with you or get a copy of your book, Korea's Game, I mean, where would you send them? I'd send them to Barnes & Noble. I'd send them the books a million. And uh, I know that Amazon has it, although it's kind of hard to, it's hard to find it in their, in their plethora of books. Uh, when I go in and I sign for it, it pops right up. When I type in cyber war attack, it's right there. But that's because I've bought one in the past and their computer knows that. But if a, if a, if a stranger goes in and types cyber war attack, it might not pop up. But it does for Barnes and Noble, it does for books a million. Um, and it's actually uh, for sale a good price. I think the hardcover is a little expensive, but the paperback is a, is a real bargain. Um, I, uh, and, and with the paperback, as like I said, it's only, those, it's, it's only got those two little uh, 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 intro and, uh, and trailer uh, scenes that are different from uh, Korea's game. And uh, it's, I, I think Korea, uh, Cyber War Attack is fine as a book by itself. And the, the, the scenes I added are basically for a screenplay. And I, uh, I'm, I really like to see the screenplay because the, the, the trailer came out well. And I, uh, I know we could, I, I know that the, uh, the movie would play well. But what, I, I, but what I really want to do is I want to sell it as a series and do all the, uh, you know, American Apocalypse, uh, invasion of America, Dragons in the Sea, and the, whatever book comes next. Uh, those people are, have become so real to me that if I'm not writing about them, I start to miss them. I can imagine. I can imagine. They become your friends. The, uh, that's, that's cool. The, uh, now, you also have a website, right? Yes, I do. It's www.authoredmcdonald. And some people might mishear that and think it's Arthur, like the name Arthur, but it's not. It's author, the person who writes books. A-U-T-H-O-R, Ed McDonald, like McDonald's hamburgers. So authoredmcdonald.com. And you can go there and you can uh, read, some, read some chapters of the book, read about the characters, and you can play the sizzle reel for free. Excellent. So I'll make sure that I have links to uh, your website in my show notes, as well as to places like Barnes and Noble and Books a Million where they can pick up the book and, uh, and good stuff. So, so Ed, I got two more questions for you and they're just uh, questions like to ask my guests. So the first one goes like this, how do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? You mean in terms of marketing or in terms of writing new books? Just in terms of every, just something going on. This is, you, you got something you want to accomplish, but you got so much going on that it's just, overwhelming well, i have a wife and two children uh which uh keeps me keeps me busy but they're my real motivation for doing anything uh, i have uh you know i'm retired and i could i could live on my pension and uh and you know watch television with my wife but the thing is, is i want to send my girls to college and they're both very bright and uh, I don't want them to have to be a waitress while they're going to college. I, I worked my way through and it was hard. I worked from the time I was 18 to the time I was 68, I always had two jobs. And that included getting, while I was getting three degrees at the university. Um, so the reason I'm writing these books is I want to establish some trust uh, for my daughters so that when they graduate college, they, they can pay back their college loans. Maybe they have enough money for a car or down payment on a house. And that would be, to me, that would be leaving them a fabulous fortune. 
And after that, you know, they're on their own. But uh, I want to be able to get my girls started in life. And that's what keeps me going when I think about uh, going on a marketing tour, uh, writing a screenplay, uh, dealing with the guys who wrote my sizzle reel that I had to make them redo it 12 times. And finally, <laughs> I kept saying, I want you to have, I said, get a couple of actors to do a scene. And they, they, well, they didn't want to spend the money. I said, get a couple of actors from the drama department at the university. They'll do it for free. <laughs> credit. No, no, they couldn't be motivated. I said, look, I'm going to shoot, I'm going to shoot this at home on my, on my iPhone and send it to you. So you know what it looks like. So I sent it to them. And did they use it for what it looks like? No, they put it in the sizzle reel like they, like they had made it. Nice, nice. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of slows me down. <laughs> you know, everybody has problems like that. I'm not special. As a matter of fact, what's special about me is I survived all this stuff. I, I've spent more times being told I was going to die than I've spent, been, than I've spent being told I was going to get a degree. Um, when I was like 33, I was told that I had lymphatic cancer and six months to live. Wow. Well, I, okay, I'm way past that now, but uh, I, it was very, very depressing. And the girl I was engaged to left me. Uh, wow. You can imagine I was really, uh, felt badly about that. Then the hospital, then the, the my, my, my insurance didn't pay the, was slow pay to the hospital. And they sold my, uh, they sold my debt to some, uh, some thug who ran a collection agency. And there I am laying in bed and I'd had surgery to take a lymph gland out from next to my heart. I could hardly move. And this guy calls me up and says, Hey, you're deadbeat. You gotta, you gotta pay your bills, man. I said, uh, look, I'm sorry. You know, the hospital, the insurance is going to pay it. Nah, they ain't going to pay it. You got to pay it. Well, I said, I'm not going to pay it. He said, I'm going to come over there. And if you, you don't get, give me, you don't cough up the money. I'm going to break your legs. I said, well, I can't get out of bed, so you'll have to kick my door down. I said, but go ahead. Come on over. I said, I've got a 357 Magnum on the nightstand here, and <laughs> I'll be waiting for you. Strangely enough, uh, the brave thug never showed up, but I, I thought he was serious. <laughs> I can understand why. <laughs> my life has gone like that. There's always been, always been something like that going on. Uh, when I first got over this, when I first got to the point where I was getting some medicine and I was going to get better and I felt better, I was a scuba diving instructor. I went with some friends out to, uh, out to Shark Island and uh, got caught in a riptide, got carried out to sea. The, the waves were breaking over me so I couldn't catch a breath. The guy who was supposed to help me had taken the, boat, the motor apart on the boat. I spent the next two hours going down the, the, the beach Finally, getting up on a rock and then, and then uh, climbing through a crack in the cliff to go back to the place where the boat was. And uh, I did this, and uh, it, was, it was a fighting for my life for hours there. And I got there, and they all said, oh, Ed, how you doing? I said, I'm fine. I'm here. And my life has just gone like that over and over. I could, I could tell you these stories all day long, but, you know, you have a show to run. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're good stuff. Good stuff. It's just, it's just amazing to me that I'm still here. And, uh, and, you know, sometimes it was just the grace of God that I'm still around. And, and I was, I was miserable most of my life. You know, I was accomplishing things, but I wanted to have a wife and kids. I wanted love and I didn't have it. And I didn't have it. And I found girls who really liked me and they wanted to marry me, but I didn't love them enough. I knew I didn't. And when they confronted me, I had to say, you know, I really, really like you, but I don't love you enough to, to be your husband. And there's tears and then they're gone. And I, which I didn't want, but, and finally I was in Russia taking a language refresher class. Here I'm 52 years old. And a friend set me up on a blind date with a girl who's 29. And right away, she's too, nine, too, too young. She's not eligible to be a wife for me. And I, I, I met her in the subway. In Russia, you always meet your blind date in the subway. And she walked up and said, hi. In Russian, that's привет. Hi. She said that to me. I looked at her and I said, I have got to marry this girl. And uh, a year and a half later, I did, I did marry this girl. And that's been 20 years now. And I have never Congrats. been happier in my life. Congrats. Nice. Very nice. 
So, you know, it's just, <laughs> no one's more surprised than me. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. It, it, okay. I got a last question for you. Um, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? <laughs> I had some excellent teachers. And uh, two of them have been my good friends for 50 years. One of them was Del Phillips, my Russian teacher. And he was instrumental in helping my wife to get over here to marry me. Um, and the other one is John McElroy, who, who just published a great book called uh, Agitprop in America. And he, uh, I've known him for 50 years. And he, he and I published my thesis together. When I wrote my master's degree, they said, you don't need to do a thesis anymore. And I said, well, I'm going to do one because I want to do it right. And so I, um, I, solved, a, I solved a mystery about uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's books. He wrote, uh, he wrote six novels, and five of them had a hidden murder, and the sixth one didn't. So I spent a year reading it over and over, and I found that there was a hidden murder in the sixth book, but it was very carefully concealed. And I, and I found out all the evidence, put it together, and published it. Uh, nice. So I solved, I solved a 200-year-old mystery. And uh, no one was happier than me, but anyway, John McElroy helped me with that. And I just talked to him a couple hours ago. He is a, a, a great, great guy. And so, uh, so I have two teachers who were instrumental. And uh, I have had other very good teachers, but those are the two who inspired me the most. Very cool. Very cool. That, that's awesome. The, uh, it, it, and I can't thank you enough for talking with me today. Korea's Game was a page turner, and uh, good luck with the promotion. And I look forward to seeing that series, series coming soon. You know, uh, wish you the very best in all you do. Well, you've been very kind to me. Thank you so much for all your help, and I really enjoyed being on your program today. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends. Hey!